Well, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Exodus this morning, Exodus chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, that should be on page 45. Exodus chapter 2. I will read through the chapter for us. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. But one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were watched, were watched uh, and, and were, his people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I recently went down for a visit with my grandparents. I grew up calling them Oma and Opa because he's German. Uh, As you expect from a couple well along in their years and unable to get around much anymore, we spend a fair bit of time in the living room in front of the TV. Uh, These visits have a pattern that have developed over the last 15 years or so. In the morning, it's local news. Uh, In the afternoon, it's Judge Judy or maybe some reruns of Antique Roadshow. Uh, And then in the evening, it's Wheel of Fortune in Jeopardy. Maybe you're familiar with this routine. 
normally I take a few books with me. I can read in almost any situation, and so I'll just be plugging away reading a good book. Uh, but this last trip, uh, the only time I put my book down is really to play cards with Opa when he's feeling up for it, uh, or rarely a show will come on that actually grabs my attention. And this last trip, that's what happened. Uh, it was some craftsman show that came on, and it was about a custom knife maker. But what grabbed me and made me put my book down was the fact that this knife maker did everything. He went to the shore of Lake Michigan and dug up the ore and went and smelt and bloomed it. And he hammered it and heated it and folded it and refined it. Now, of course, this is all edited down for a you know, one-hour, less commercials TV show. Uh, but I started to do some looking, and a custom knife maker like that, it can take as much as one to two weeks to go through that whole process, taking it off the shore, smelting it, and so forth. I, I just found it fascinating as he walked through his process and, and how he made these, va- these, these blades and, and how he would heat it and fold it and then hammer it again and again to beat out the impurities and the voids in the metal, to harden it. Uh, and later, as thinking about that show, I was reminded of the prophet Malachi, who called the angel or messenger of the Lord the one who brings the refiner's fire. It made me think of the many passages in the New Testament which, which speak of our trials as being refining for us. Think of James, that we would consider it all joy when we encounter various trials because God is using them to produce steadfastness and perseverance so we would be lacking in nothing. As steel requires heating and folding and, and hammering out the voids, so too do we. And if you're anything like me, you have lived enough life to see uh, deja vu, repeats, folding. You've been through just enough situations where you said, oh, thank you, Lord, I think I finally learned that lesson. A couple weeks or months or maybe years later, I swear I've been through this before. Why is this so familiar? Well, apparently I still have a void in there somewhere. Well, last week we began our study of Exodus and how... God told Abraham everything that was going to happen is exactly the way it's happening, including his people going down and suffering oppression at the hands of this nation, precisely as God had said it would. And we saw how Israel represented a corporate Adam. They are literally doing exactly what God said Adam would do, being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, The song remains the same. They're back in the same situation, being heated folded and forged. Not only was Israel serving as a corporate Adam, but they were also experiencing the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, that he would have an innumerable number of children. Uh, They were being very fruitful, filling the land, the the earth really is what it said. And then we also saw how Pharaoh was pictured as the seed of the serpent, charging that all the baby boys be thrown in the Nile. And the chapter ended, chapter 1 ended, with Pharaoh turning all of Egypt into a corporate seed of the serpent, charging all of them to join in throwing the babies into the Nile. In other words, Exodus has shown us that Genesis 3.15 is still playing out. The whole message of the Bible is that the seed of the serpent is seeking to strike and devour the seed of the woman. And that's precisely where we still are at here at this next section of Exodus. We are told about this corporate serpent in Egypt seeking to destroy the baby boys. And 
Yet, it is God who is silently working behind the scenes. In particular, this passage we're going to look at this morning focuses primarily on God's forging of Moses. And so our sermon title this morning is Forging a Foreigner. We'll walk through the sermon and three points of the working of women, Moses to Midian, crying and covenant. And the argument from this passage is simple. We need a savior greater than Moses to deliver us from our bondage. And if I was going to add one more point, it's we need a savior greater than Moses to deliver us from our bondage and to our reward. We'll see that in the last point. Well, first, the working of women. Uh, Last week, I showed us how the end of Exodus chapter 1 showed Pharaoh as the seed of the serpent seeking to destroy all the boys. But it was the women who spoiled his plans. He was only worried about killing the boys because the boys grew up to be men who can fight, and yet the ladies were busy at work, sparing with the midwives. And that same theme continues here. After mentioning Moses' father was from the tribe of Levi, we don't hear anything else about men for these first 10 verses. It's the work of women. And focusing in particularly on Moses' mother, she gives birth to him, and the NIV reads, she saw that he was a fine child. Well, quite literally, what it says is, she saw that he was good. It's actually the same language used of God creating and seeing it was good. Uh, Moses' mom has procreated, and she sees he is good. And so she hides him for as long as she can. Uh, when she gets to the point she can't hide him any longer, she puts him in, the NIV reads, a papyrus basket and covers it with tar and pitch. But that word for basket is the same word used for Noah's ark. As a matter of fact, that's the only other time that word is used, is for Noah's ark. So, so just as Israel is pictured as a corporate Adam, uh, so too is Moses kind of pictured as Noah part du. Uh, Noah again, in the ark, raised up above the waters of destruction, the waters that are claiming little boys, Moses is floating above the destruction. Now, we have to unfortunately dismantle the wonderful little cartoon movie, Prince of Egypt, which shows this scene where the baby's put in the basket and he's going through waves and and crocodiles are trying to snap at him. No, it, it says mom was quite a bit smarter than that. She put him in the reeds along the shore. Sorry to ruin the movie for you. Uh, Now, we're not told why she does this explicitly in the text, but there's a hint in that the daughter says she stays at a distance and watches. And uh, one Old Testament scholar has mentioned that since Pharaoh isn't named, Pharaoh's daughter is not named, we don't know for sure. But doing some dating, it's possible that the Pharaoh here would have been Ramses II. And if it was him, he fathered over a hundred children, and at least 60 of them were daughters. So perhaps Moses' mom figured out, well, I know where all of Pharaoh's daughters go to bathe. Let's go place the ark right there and wait. And that's precisely what seems to happen. Uh, But the emphasis here in the telling of the story is on irony. It's the daughter of the serpent who spares the seed of the woman. It, It was Pharaoh who gave the order that all of Egypt, and remember, Pharaoh's a god, to the Egyptians. He's the one who gives the order. And yet, when she sees the baby crying, she felt sorry for him. Uh, And then to add irony to irony, it's not only the daughter of the serpent who rescues this baby, but she rescues the very one who will crush the head of that serpent king when he takes them out. 
in that very river that she saved him from. Uh, There also might be some foreshadowing here of the fact that the daughter uh, then uh, tells uh, Moses' sister, hey, go get someone and I'll pay them to nurse this baby and wean him. And sure enough, she goes and gets mom. So mom is getting paid from Pharaoh's daughter to wean the baby who will actually stomp on the serpent's head. And remember, the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis was, when you lead out of that place, you will pillage them. So here we have seeming some foreshadowing uh, that already Israel is getting the gold of Egypt, as it were. Well, we're not told how long Moses' mother nursed him. We're not told how much she was able to teach him. Uh, We just know when he grew older. Uh, When he grew older, we're told that it was actually Pharaoh's daughter who named him Moses. She said she drew him out of the water. Now, oftentimes a connection is made there. uh, the, The Hebrew word for draw out sounds kind of like Moses. But remember, this is Pharaoh's daughter who is naming him, so it's doubtful that she spoke Hebrew. Actually, I think there's a pun going on here. Because the Egyptian word for Moses simply means the son of. So there's a big question. Is this boy going to be the son of the serpent's daughter or not? He's the son of somebody. Who will it be? Well, again, we're told wonderful little beautiful story pieces, but there's so many questions. One of the challenges of these first 10 verses is there's how much is just left unsaid. How many other babies were thrown in the river? Were there other mothers that were able to spare their sons this horrible demise? Again, how long did she have the baby? We're just not told. And I think this is a helpful point of application. Is it, friends, the Bible is not merely a historical book. It doesn't tell us history for the sake of history. As a matter of fact, I, I kind of cringe a little bit when I people, hear people talk about the historical books of the Bible. Partially the reason I cringe is because the Hebrew Bible doesn't have any historical books. The Hebrew Bible has three parts. It has the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Torah is the, the law or the instructions. It's the first five books, the books of Moses. Then the Nevi'im, the prophets, well, they make up Joshua, Judges, Ruth for second, or Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 1 2 Kings. And then it jumps to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the Twelve. Uh, that's the prophets earlier and later. And then the writings is, is uh, you know, the wisdom literature and Daniel and Ruth and, and all the rest of them there. But there are no historical books in the Hebrew Bible, strictly speaking. And, and the reason for that is because the Bible is not interested in giving us history for the sake of history. Uh, the Bible is giving us God's story. Every story in this book, God put it in there for a specific purpose. And so one of the first tasks upon us as Bible readers, and as you start a Bible reading plan or this new year, is start with those questions. Uh, Start with questions that are asking, well, why did God put this in the Bible? Start with questions of, what is God seeking to teach us by having this story in the Bible? And particularly teach us about himself. Because remember, the Bible is God's revelation of himself. He's revealing himself to us. So when you finish your Bible reading, ask yourself, what is God teaching us about himself? Uh, Do that before you jump to, well, what does this mean to me? And see, in other words, friends, the most important part of reading and applying the Bible is first, not only, but first, theological. It's teaching us about God. What is his purpose? Why did he put it in here? Why did he put it that way? Only then can you rightly apply the Bible to yourself. 
This is where so many times popular level devotionals, the really the cuddly ones, you know, the precious moments figurine type devotionals like Jesus Calling, they go off the rails. Because even though there's a lot of Bible in there, and even though there's a lot of helpful things that are reasonably true, they almost always get their reasonable truths from a passage that has nothing to do with what they're saying. You know, the only way to rightly apply the Bible is to first understand what it's teaching us about God, and then you derive your understanding about how it applies to us. So in this passage of Exodus, what is stunning about this passage is God hasn't been mentioned. And yet, you have this very clear picture of God fulfilling his plan and promise to Abraham. So in other words, if you want to apply this at the simplest level, it's this. Friends, when God seems absent, he never is. In seasons when your feelings are telling you he's missing, he's not. He's never napping. He's never out to lunch. No. As a matter of fact, we might push that a little further. It is probably our feelings that are the problem. See, those kind of super popular level devotions are designed to play on the feelings. But here, no, that's absolutely not what's going on. You better believe they felt. We're going to see at the end of this chapter how they felt the fear and the worry. But that doesn't change who God is. That doesn't change how we should hope in him when he seemingly is absent. So then maybe another way to apply that is when your feelings aren't functioning as they should, what should you do? Well, Ephesians 4 tells us. That's why it's the work of the church to do the ministry of the church, to build each other up, speaking the truth to one another in love. So when your feelings are that God is absent, go to a fellow Christian and say, I, I think my feelings are off. Help me with this. Have them walk with you. Because again, there will be seasons when God seems silent. 400 years they spent in Egypt. But God wasn't napping. And to prove that God isn't in a hurry, and yet he's not absent, between this verse and the next, we transition 40 years. And even though now this deliverer has been born, it's going to be 80 years until he's actually ready to deliver them. So, we'll zip now 40 years in our next passage, Moses to Midian. We've gone from him as a baby to now him getting ready to exit. Look at verses 11 through 15. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Well, this middle section between verse 11 and 22 here, uh, there's going to be three episodes we'll see in Moses' life where he shows up on a scene where there's people being oppressed. And so we're going to see him progress in these three episodes in his response. We're looking at the first two here. And the reason there's three of them is because in these, God is heating and folding and forging and refining Moses. So he'd grown up. And he had learned that, that he is going to be, or he learned that he was a Hebrew. We're not told anything about it here, but we do know that he goes out to his people. As a matter of fact, I want you to see how the New Testament comments on this. So keep a finger here and flip to Acts 7, 
23, or actually Acts 7.20. What Acts 7.20? We'll read the New Testament filling in some of the details for us here. It's on page 888 of the Pew Bibles, if you're using those, by the way. So Acts 7, verse 20 through 29, gives us some commentary on this passage. This is during Stephen's speech, and he says, At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Uh, You can flip back to Exodus. But notice what this passage said. Uh, Here we find out that Moses knew, apparently from God, that he was going to go and, and be this deliverer. And and by going out and rescuing, delivering this particular Israelite who is suffering, he thinks that they're going to see him as, he's our great deliverer. Of course, it's rather a silly plan when you think about it, though. Uh, He went out to be the Savior, but in his own strength. And so instead of saving, he ends up murdering, is what he does. Looking this way and that. Just note to self, if a Savior has to look around first before they save, maybe it's not a good Savior. There's actually a ton of wonderful little puns here in this section. Uh, the NIV reads beating, and that the man was beating him, the Egyptian, and then Moses killed him. But in Hebrew, it's the same word. So it's actually the Egyptian struck a Hebrew, and Moses struck and killed the Egyptian. What is striking, pun intended, about this picture is how God's people can be so quick to try and do his work in their power. Uh, Moses knew that he was going to be used by God, uh, and yet he jumped out in his own strength. He sought to save his way. And how easy that can be for us as Christians. Uh, Christians know that we're called to be a light. Uh, Churches know, as I pray, that we're, we're to fulfill the Great Commission. And so we are eager to do so. But sometimes we can do so jumping out in our own strength. One of the most vivid illustrations uh, of this is actually by comparing and contrasting the first and second Great Awakening. You see, the second so-called Great Awakening emphasized, extremely emphasized, human methods for attempting to save people. I could give you many examples. Here's just one. There was one Baptist pastor turned revivalist who's named Jacob Knapp. And he, would, he wrote this whole little booklet about a practice of getting people to stand and come forward at revival meetings following Charles Finney. By the way, that's, that's where that whole walk in the aisle thing came from, was the Second Great Awakening. And this is the, the, the logic, the human logic behind it. He said this whole idea was this. If you can get someone to stand, then they're already on the move, as it were. Uh, so Knapp would use emotional appeals. Sinner, aren't you willing to stand for Jesus? 
Is it there one sinner here who would be willing to stand up for Jesus? You know, enough of that, and some poor soul, you know, slowly kind of slithers up. And then after getting them to stand, he'd use other things. Friend, it is more dishonorable to go back than it is forward. So come. And he had a bench in the front called the anxious bench. He'd get them to come and to sit. And after one came, sometimes even more would come. And then he'd take them back to the anxious room or the decision room. He'd take them back there. And he said that he would use this standing and calling people forward as a means of, quote, bringing others to a right decision by force of example. Knapp said that by having them come forward, it had the added benefit of the minister being able to figure out just how good his revival was going that day. He would demand an immediate response, an immediate decision for Jesus, and he added instantaneous baptism as well. Again, that's the roots of the altar call that many of us grew up with in churches. History is very interesting. But that altar call type of platform, that, that, that whole emotive work has not gone away. A little over 10 years ago, a journalist did a report on Stephen Furtick and Elevation Church. He started doing this instantaneous baptism services, and he sought to encourage people to come forward in the same type of way, except they found out that he even planted people in the audience at key stations. So when they stood up, they'd be seen. And they were the first ones to come forward, stirring the rest of the crowd to come. He sought to encourage them to come forward to baptism with no examination, no question. They even wrote a guidebook. It was called Spontaneous Baptism's How-To Guide. You'd think it'd be a little more imaginative than that. One sentence reads this. Included in this document is everything that we did to prepare the way for God to show up. It goes on. Here's how we activated our faith to pull off our part in God's miracle. Okay, those are extreme examples. But friend, if you're anything like me, growing up in conservative Christian churches, aren't there ways that we try to help God? Aren't there ways that we, in seasons of silence, try to nudge things forward? I'm sure you've heard or said things like this. I have, too. Uh, if we could just dial in that outreach program, if we, can, if we can get that right, people will come. Uh, if we have the right music, if we can get the right children's programming, on and on down the list. Now, Moses teaches us that God definitely calls people to ministry, but he will only use us his way, not ours. Our calling is to grow in faithfulness to his word, to seek to submit every aspect of the church back to his word. Now, not everything is explicit, so we seek to be prayerful and patient. We, we seek to be careful to make sure that we're trusting in God doing his work through his word and not through programs. So friends, members of Bethany in particular, pray for us that we would seek to do God's work God's way. That we don't try to get ahead and, and do things. And that doesn't mean you don't do anything, but it is to say that we're careful. It is to say that we seek first and foremost to be faithful and let God bring fruitfulness. So pray that we'd have wisdom to know when to go and when to stay. Well, that is Moses' problem here. And he goes out the first time, sees a man striking, and he strikes him dead. He goes out the next day and sees two Hebrews fighting. And then he has the temerity to ask. We miss it in the English translation. But he has the temerity to ask, why do you strike your brother? 
anybody reading in the original saying, wait a minute, the dude who just struck someone dead is worried about this guy striking this other guy with his words? It's supposed to grab you. And the man's response, again, loaded with irony, is, who made you judge of us? Well, in chapter 18, God's going to make Moses judge over you. But moreover, what is keen about this or important about this particular section is that the man knows. So Moses is looking this way and that to say it wasn't all that helpful. And not only does this man know, but Pharaoh knows. And so Moses has to flee from Pharaoh's wrath yet again. So, so far, Moses has faced two tests. He clearly has a heart for the oppressed. When he sees someone who's oppressed, he acts, even though he acts in his own strength. How would the third test go? We'll look at verses 16 through 22. 16 through 22. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? And they answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So, Moses now has fleed off to Midian. And we learn about this priest of Midian. Here he's named Ruel. In the next chapter, we'll find his name is also Jethro. Uh, the Midianites were sons of Abraham and Keturah, another wife that Abraham had. Uh, but they're Gentiles in the sense they're not part of the promises of God to Abraham. So he's a Gentile priest and Exodus 18 will explain to us that he is not a priest of Yahweh. He's a pagan, polytheistic priest. Uh, and whatever his role as a priest is, again, we're not told. What we are told is that this priest has seven daughters. And they were the ones who were watering his flocks, maybe because of his priestly duties. And they happened to come out to draw water right near the well that Moses was sitting by. Again, Bible readers, you should be hearing well, sitting, watering flocks. This is pulling up those Abraham, Isaac, Jacob stories from Genesis, right? Well, as with the two previous instances, these shepherds show up and they start to oppress the daughters. How will Moses do? Well, quite literally, it says Moses saved them. Not only did he save them, but then he serves them by watering their flocks for them. So Moses, again, is pictured as being deeply concerned with injustice, saving or delivering those who are suffering from it. Well, the daughters, apparently this was a repeated habit with these shepherds because the daughters get back home so quick, it makes dad say, well, what happened? Well, you know, the shepherds usually harass us. They couldn't. There was an Egyptian. He came out and saved us and he watered the flock for us. It was really fast. And you have to love Jethro's response. I, I think there's this intended comedy here. The man with seven daughters. Where is he? Why didn't you bring him home? Why didn't you feed him? The very next line is, Moses agrees to stay, and then he's married and has a baby. Uh, I mean, it just seems to be playing on the old, the old trope. A good man is hard to find. Apparently really hard when you have seven daughters. The whole scene, just the way it's written, is, br is brilliant. You know, again, Moses agreed to stay, and then he gets married and has a kid. Well, joking aside, Moses is agreeing to stay is actually better worded, I think, in, in the, the ESV. Um, but before we get there, he, he, he mentions that his son, his now, after he has his son, he names him Gershom, which is foreigner, sojourner. And he says, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. 
Now, this is a direct fulfillment of what God promised Abraham in Genesis 15, 13. Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land not theirs. God's forging Moses had brought him to see just how much of a foreigner he was. As I said, the ESV, I think, transfers it better. It says he was content to dwell there, but he knew this was not his home. He was content to dwell there, but he knew he was a stranger. I think in this, Moses is a wonderful example for Christians today. As you Christians, we should be content to dwell wherever the Lord has us. And yet, we should realize that we are just sojourners and strangers. Uh, this past week of watching the insanity with the repeated failed votes for Speaker of the House, I, I was reminded of how important it is for us to see that we are strangers. There is no politician and party to put your hope in. I mean, on the one hand, I thought, with leaders like these, who needs enemies? And on the other hand, I thought, what a good reminder that that's not what we hope in. The brokenness of the system should be that extra reminder for us that that is not where we should derive security. So friends, may we be content here, even seeking the good of our city as far as we're able. May we be content to dwell in this area and love our neighbors well. But may we also flee from placing any hope in anything else other than God. What well, we've seen, Moses' behavior has changed a little bit in these three episodes. He's being forged, folded, and purified. But now the scene is going to shift, and it shifts to God, who has not been mentioned up until this point. Look at the last three verses, 23 through 25. This is crying and covenant. During that long period, again, at least 40 years, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. One commentator, Alec Motier, notes the stark shift that has taken place here, very quickly moving to Pharaoh who died. There's this hope maybe Israel's sufferings will alleviate, but they do not. They continue on. But the other, the other shift that takes place is in verses 11 through 22, there was 16 verbs, and Moses was the subject of 14 of the 16. In other words, 11 through 22 is just all. Moses did, Moses did, Moses did, Moses did, Moses did, the whole thing. And now it shifts. You don't hear about Moses. And the, the way you hear about Israel is even, I tend to think, more passive Whereas Moses was front and center trying to do God's work his way, now we're going to see God do his own work his own way. And the point remains clear. Only God can accomplish the deliverance that his people need. Sure, Moses was able to save the daughters, but his people are still languishing. Now, regarding the people's suffering and crying go out, there's a dispute among the commentators. There's different views. I think probably the majority of commentators take it this way. What they say is that this is a kind of prayer. That what you're supposed to picture is that Israel is praying. They're crying out to God. And so that is their act of kind of coming together after these you know, hundreds of years, 360 years or whatever, of, of growing oppression, and that they are crying out to God. Many brilliant commentators and scholars hold that view. It could be correct. However, I follow some other commentators that take a different view. I don't believe that Israel is crying out to God in verse 23. 
I believe they're just groaning under oppression. I think there's a hint for this, the way it unfolds in the verse. Israel is clearly groaning in their slavery, but notice, I think the NIV translates it fine, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. I think that's showing us that they're passive. God is active. And I think that is even more brought home for us uh, in the way that God is mentioned in verses 24 through 25. The NIV is very unfortunate in its translation of 24 and 25. Uh, It's trying to smooth out the reading for English readers, which is fine, but the ESV gets it exactly right. Listen to how 24 and 25 are rendered better. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Four times, with four verbs, God is the subject. Over and against 14 times, Moses was the subject. Uh, No, I think the picture is that the people are just crying out. As with chapter 1, when they went through all this suffering, there was no hint they cried out to God then. I don't think they're crying out to God now. They're just crying out in general. And yet God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. And again, while I think that's the best understanding of that text... Uh, No matter what view you take, you still have to wrestle with, well, what does it mean for God to remember and God to know? I mean, if he's all-knowing, how does he remember? Well, part of that is because of our English translations and the way we think about these things. Uh, But what's really taking place here is when God's remembering, he's enacting what he said before. So he is about to do exactly what he told Abraham in Genesis 15. He remembered to enact He is going to save his people, which is why it says, you remember, the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God remembered he's about to act and save through Moses, who will be called in the next chapter to do that very thing. And the next one is God knew. Well, again, God is all-knowing. And the Hebrew just says just that, God knew. (laughs) That's all it says. Well, part of the thing you need to understand about this is in in Hebrew, that word for know is often bound up not with just factual knowledge, but with intimate relationship. So Genesis 4.1 is Adam knew Eve, and she bore a son. That's, that's not just I happen to know a fact. That is an intimate, relational knowing. Which is to say, God is pictured here as knowing his people's suffering. Uh, Moses saw it and tried to fix it in his way. God was silent, but it didn't mean he didn't know. God knew. See, as I thought about this connection between Israel crying out, and not necessarily to God, I did wonder, maybe you're visiting this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian. I wonder if you can relate. If when in hard seasons of life, if you just have the urge to cry out, but maybe you don't quite know who to cry out to. You see, like Israel in this situation, they're crying out. They're under the the burdens and pressures of life. And yet, what this passage is showing us this morning is that we need to cry out to God. But also, God knows. There is nothing that you can experience that God does not know. That God cannot save you from. The question for you, friend, this morning is, are you willing to get to know the God to whom you need to cry out to. 
Are you willing to learn about this God who sees, who remembers, who hears, and who knows his people? A friend, if, if that is you this morning, I would encourage you, ask the friend you came with, someone sitting next to you, or I'd love to talk to you afterward. But get to know the one you can call out to. For Christians, I think this passage shows us, again, that in seasons of suffering, God is intimately present. Even when he seems silent, he's still at work. He may not be working in the way we prefer, but he is certainly working to forge us into foreigners. That's why I've said, friends, we need a savior greater than Moses to deliver us from bondage. And our passage has shown us Moses' failure to save God's people in his own strength. But you might be interested to find out how the book of Hebrews refers to this passage as well. We saw how Acts did. If you want, you can flip over to Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. I'll look quickly at how the author of Hebrews also comments on this experience in the life of Moses. <clears throat> Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. It's by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than in, to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. The Acts told us that he knew. In Hebrews here, we learn uh, that he actually sought to not be seen as the son of Pharaoh but instead to be the son of Israel. And in so doing, he did so intentionally because he knew that while there'd be pleasures in Egypt, they were fleeting sinful pleasures. Um, but then also, it has that rather interesting note that he was willing to suffer the disgrace of Christ. Now, that's not in the book of Exodus. Uh, this is the, author's Hebrew, uh, the author of Hebrew's way of going back and reading the Old Testament and seeing how all the threads are driving us to Jesus. And so Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ, his, his willingness then to be bound with Christ's people. Just as Israel is the corporate Adam, we're going to see in Exodus 4.21 that Israel is the firstborn son of God, which of course is driving us to the true Son of God. But also what we see here in this passage, and which is true throughout the book of Hebrews, is in Hebrews, faith is a future-focused faith. He's looking beyond. He's looking ahead, as it were. All faith in Hebrews is, is driving at that. And so, as we've seen in the book of Exodus, it in, ended this section that we looked at of God knowing that is his relational, intimate awareness, even when they didn't see him acting. They had a future-focused faith. But God knew, as picked up in Isaiah 63, 9, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. God knew. And the fulfillment of God identifying with his people, of course, comes to a head in a culmination in Jesus, who Hebrews 4.15 says, is the great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, because he did not sin like Moses did. But there's one last thing about this Hebrews reading of Exodus that I think is fascinating. And maybe you've never seen this before. But what it says is that Moses was looking ahead. He has future-focused faith. He was looking ahead for his reward. 
but his reward might not be what you think it is. Hebrews 11, the last two verses of Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, tell us what this reward is. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, speaks of all of those who were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Did you catch that? The Old Testament saints, with their future-focused faith, had to wait for their reward. And their reward was bound up with all of God's people being united to Christ. They, Old Testament saints, were waiting for us to be united together. That is the faith that the next verses will go on in chapter 12 to say that Jesus is the author and perfecter of. It's faith in all the promises of God taking us through Christ, the one who endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated now at the right hand of the Father. The promised reward for them was to be united to Christ and us, which is why the Hebrews is going to go on to say, and that union is already taking place now, spiritually, as we gather in the heavenly Jerusalem. It says, we have come to this heavenly Jerusalem, the church of the firstborn. That is all those who have been united to Christ, have been gathered in this great assembly. See, only by Jesus dying for our sins, rising again to new life and ascending to heaven, can we be united with him and all the saints who've come before in Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the church of the firstborn. That, friend, is the reward Moses waited for. See, he wanted to go out and rescue God's people, but there was a far bigger rescue that had to take place, one that spans time, one that spans nationalities, and nations, one that unites God's people spiritually now in the heavenly Jerusalem, making us an outpost of the heavenly kingdom to come. And that verse there in Hebrews, it speaks of this glorious union in the new Jerusalem has been meditated on by many saints down through the years. Here's just one, the first three stanzas of Charles Wesley's hymn, Come, Let Us Join Our Friends Above, speaks of this very thing says this, Come, let us join our friends above who have obtained the prize and on the eagle wings of love to joys celestial rise. Let saints on earth unite to sing with those to glory gone for all the servants of our king in earth and heaven are one. One family we dwell in him, one church above beneath, though now divided by the stream, the narrow stream of death, one army of the living God, to his command we bow. Part of his host have crossed the flood, and part are crossing now. Ten thousand to their endless home this solemn moment fly, and we are to the margin come, and we expect to die. But even now, by faith, we join our hands with those that went before to greet the blood-besprinkled bands on the eternal shore. Friends, that's the salvation that the Son has worked for us. We needed a Savior greater than Moses to deliver us from our bondage. And praise Jesus that all of those blood-be-sprinkled band get to join together as we worship him each week as an outpost of the heavenly Jerusalem. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how we thank you 
Lord, that you knew what our need was long before we did. Lord, we thank you that you have always called your people to be those who are serving you and yet help us to do so in your strength, looking to your Son who has made us one with your people across time. We thank you for that wonderful reality. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.